often strikes me what a particular kind of privilege it is to be in this kind of environment to be on retreat it's the way that you're able we're able to make uh, time and space available for ourselves to really be not troubled by many, any of the usual details and duties and dramas of our life in the world. How the privilege of being in this extraordinary environment of care and support and quietitude where not only are our basic needs taken care of, we're fed and sheltered, etc. But also there's a very well-established and tangible sense of, of care, of support, of trustworthiness. An environment of trustworthiness that somehow allows us, or at least invites us, to soften into it to allow ourselves to be here in a condition that may feel unusually receptive, vulnerable, etc. And then with the support of teachings, reflections, like-minded community, It's a situation where we're able, at least all the outer circumstances are set up in such a way, even if inner life isn't always so cooperative, that everything's set up to allow us really just to have all our attention here. And as we've been emphasizing through the days, here doesn't have an edge to it. And it may be that our attention's pulled to what's happening around us, or it might be that it's pulled to what we think is happening around us. Maybe well, the attention's pulled to what's happening within us. It may be that attention is pulled to places that seem to be other than here, memories and images of other places, other moments, other scenarios. And yet because of the environment, because of the encouragement, because of our practice, because of support of teachings, we have maybe a more potentized opportunity than normal to recognize that all of this that happens, happens here. Here in awareness. Here within consciousness. So much so that it's impossible as we were exploring at the beginning of the week and has been standing out rather uh, beautifully and clearly to some of you, it's impossible to have an experience that isn't here, that doesn't arise here. There's only here. We can't be anywhere other than here. We've never been anywhere other than here. And wherever we ever go, exactly. But... 
like we were saying yesterday, the habit of duality is very strong. So however much we explore the here of things, probably the thought has arisen within the here of here at Gaia House. Probably the thought has arisen about the there-ness of somewhere else called home or work or just, I don't know what. And as we, as we come towards the end of the retreat, the sense, even though our whole training and practice is about here-ness, so we can find ourselves reinforcing a kind of dichotomy between here on retreat, here this support, here this environment, here this rhythm of practice, etc. And there. And you might just see for a moment right now if you, if, what your sense of there is. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe it's very clear that there's no such thing as there. Maybe there is something you just can't wait for. Your own bed, your own food, your own whatever it might be. Or it could be that as you've kind of deepened in the retreat and felt the nourishment of it, that there's a kind of, oh, there, a sense of, all oh, the world that might come crashing back in the second you turn on your mobile phone. Hmm. So we might just explore a little bit. You know, what do we what what if we look at the inside of what it means to bring our practice into the world? And hopefully and I think this is the this is really the 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 real ground of the true integration of practice into life what we might call bringing our practice into the world, is this truth, that we don't actually take it anywhere. It's easy to emphasize the difference, difference in amount of silence, difference in amount of sitting, difference of various trivial details. But just have a sense of yourself as you sit here. Isn't the sense of yourself kind of familiar? Isn't it really very familiar? State may change. State may be different now than it was five or six days ago. But that's nothing unusual about that. State, your mind state now is probably also different than it was just half an hour ago. So mind state changes. And uh, environment changes. But the basic... Hearness, for want of a better word... The basic sense of this mysterious, inconceivable, ungraspable, ununderstandable even field of knowing where it all happens, that's always with us. It really doesn't matter whether we're sitting here or walking there or running somewhere else or making breakfast while answering the phone and... uh, you know, doing whatever else you might do. So that's that's the ground of integration, the recognition that there is actually a much greater non-difference 
between what we call here and there than the difference we make up. <coughs> and therefore it's important to just look at the way we, we make up, fabricate, the sense of difference. So we have all kinds of ideas of the world. And again, you might just stop and notice for a minute what, what that evokes for you. The world. Or your world. Your life. Your details and duties and dramas. how much as you just consider the sense of your life and we've been looking at our life life in the rather particular context of dharma understanding we've been looking at life and our life in its immediacy in its expansiveness in its transparency in its inseparability and in it's just like thisness and yet the forces at play in the, in the world don't usually encourage that kind of looking. They encourage a, a solidity, a polarisation, a this and that, a here and there, etc. And it may be we're interested in the affairs of the world. We can't help but be implicated in the affairs of the world. And we look at the world, and that might be our own personal, like I say, details and dramas. My life, my relationships, my work, my financial situation, my struggles, my problems, my confusions, my history. And it might be the larger details and dramas of the world. Politics, culture, Wealth, inequality, social justice, climate, ecology, economy, etc. And we may have a variety of views about those things. We might be somebody who's very engaged in holding those views or propagating some of those views or trying to engage the wider culture in what seems to us the great importance of those views. Or we might be someone who finds a lot of that stuff rather overwhelming and um, hopeless. And we, we might tend to turn away from all of that stuff. And yet, and maybe as our world becomes more interconnected and more informationalized, the, the sense of our implication in the world is... is uh, more and more uh, unhideable from. We're affected by economy, ecology, climate, social justice, equality, etc. Because we don't we, cert- we don't live in a vacuum. And we don't practice in a vacuum. 
we practice, as the, the Mahayana tradition in Buddhism emphasizes very much, in the company of all beings. And that doesn't require really any kind of Buddhist belief. Just in the sensitivity that we've been cultivating to non-separateness. The way we're impacted by what we call the world. We see something we like, the heart delights. We see something we don't like, we feel the pain of it. We're impacted by the world, we're impacted by others, we're impacted by the details whether they're personal details or societal details or global details. And sometimes people, often people come to me and say, oh, I'm, I'm somebody who, um, I, uh, I take on other people's energy or I feel other people's emotions or I'm very sensitive to what's going on around me. And they ask me what to do about that. As if it's a problem. Right? And of course it can feel, definitely it can feel problematic to have our heart pulled and pushed in different directions. But life impacts on us. We don't live in a vacuum. And we don't practice in a vacuum. And so, as I say, there's a particular kind of privilege to be in an environment like this for these days and to be able to offer oneself the time and space and, and depth and support, etc. But we have to be careful that we don't end up reinforcing the idea that this is what our practice is. That we don't end up reinforcing the idea that we came here to meditate. That what this practice is about is about being a, a good meditator. What's the use of that? That our practice, that the reason we meditate, why? Not to, you don't get any, you know, there's no kudos for being a good meditator. And anyway, no one can tell. There's no difference. But in practice, to cultivate, like we were saying this morning, contactfulness, curiosity, care. We practice another way, in, in, in other words, in order to respond to the world. To respond to life. Awakening or freedom isn't defined by the kinds of experiences we have. Beautiful and important and uh, transformational though those experiences might be. And some of you have reported you know, very important, beautiful experiences. But our freedom of being isn't uh, defined by the experiences we have, but by how we respond to experience, by how we respond to what we call the world. So what's the world like? You know, that, that list of things I gave. We might look at areas of climate, ecology, politics, economy, poverty, <laughs> social justice, etc. And 
form various views. And of course, the media from which we get most of our information about those things reinforce certain views. And our own minds tend to reinforce certain views. We tend to fall into two camps. We either have an optimistic view or a pessimistic view. The optimistic view says things are getting better. Or at least things are going to get better. The pessimistic view says things are not going well and they're not going to go well. And I wonder, just to see for yourself, when you hear me talk about some of these, the stuff of the world, where, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself landing in an optimistic view of the world or a pessimistic view of the world? Or do you avoid the optimism and pessimism? There's a, there's, a, there's a nice story about freedom from optimism and pessimism. Some of you may have heard me say it before. It's an old story now. It's from when my son was six, so ten years ago. I was driving with my son and daughter in the back of the car. My daughter, who was about ten, was reading a book, and in the book was the word optimist, and she didn't know what it meant. She was nine or ten. She said, Papa, what's, opti- what's an optimist? So I trying to explain I said well uh, you, you know, I use the analogy of the glass half you know, if there's half a glass of juice the optimist would say half full pessimist say half empty etc so okay she understood the analogy and then my son who had been paying no attention and looking out the window said what are you talking about so I said oh well here's a chance to see what his view is so I said Narayan if I was to give you a glass of juice and there was juice in the glass to the halfway point <laughs> what would you say and he said Thank you. <laughs> and I, I said, oh. <laughs> That's in a way the, the essence of tatata that we were speaking about this morning, the suchness. Uh, the lovely uh, phrase that the Buddha used not one, not the other not both, not neither is the world getting better or is the world getting worse not one, not the other not both, not neither the world is like this like this but we tend to have a selective attention so of course we could point to some things where we could say, well, better. If we look at infant mortality rates, if we look at uh, care for children's rights, we can see improvement over time. We look at general health care, look at dentistry, for example. You know, when you go to India and you see people getting their teeth pulled still on the street with pliers, you think, oh, think. At least in the world we live in, things are getting better. And then we can look at uh, we can look at the climate and the ecological situation, and we can look at the way things are getting worse. And we tend to be influenced in one way or the other. <coughs> oh, 
things are getting worse. (laughs) (coughs) And it tends to be that that when we're young, I would say, you may disagree, but it tends to be, when we're young, we tend more towards optimism. And as we get older, we tend more towards pessimism. The older we get, tends to be the stronger the view that things are getting worse. And the rhetoric of the world is mostly seems to reinforce the idea that things are getting worse. <laughs> Media and news thrives on the idea that things are getting worse. It takes some kind of salacious delight in the idea that things are getting worse. And we tend to look back and idealise the past in some way. This is a bit of a track that I wasn't intending to go down, but uh, let me see how far I might go down. Maybe that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's enough to, to, to point to the fact that we tend to look at the world within that kind of binary, good or bad, right or wrong, the views that fit for me, the views that don't fit for me. And that along with whatever our views of the world is, a strong part of our views of the world is the, is the projection of our own sense of things. That's why I say we tend to be pessimistic as we get older. Because actually things are getting worse. Right? I mean, here, you know, ageing, things are getting saggier and stiffer, and etc., uh, etc. Et and they do as time goes by. It's very interesting that Lao Tzu, who was a contemporary of the Buddha in China, at the end of his life he, he wrote, When I was young, things moved more slowly. People had time for each other. Now, the world moves so fast. Young people don't respect their elders anymore. <laughs> and the, you know, the world's going to pop, basically. I don't think that's a perfectly literal translation. <laughs> so, we're invited to look through this lens at the suchness of life so as to see through our tendency to harden around particular views. And yet, we have to engage. Our practice, as we were just saying, is to respond to life. And the response to life that we have is a response to a much more globalised life than used to be. It's interesting, you know, two and a half thousand years ago that the Buddha talks about the engine of, the engines of, the, the engines of destructiveness, if you like, what do you call the three poisons of mind? Greed, hatred and delusion. Well, I was in the talk last night talking about as compulsion, contraction and confusion. And two and a half thousand years later, lots has changed. But those three things, as the engines of destructiveness, 
don't seem to have changed very much. In fact, because world has become much more globalized, institutionalized, so those forces have become globalized, institutionalized. The force of greed is is you know rapacious, rapacious. And of course, I don't need to tell you this. You read the newspapers and you know the statistics and you look at the uh, lack of social justice and the exclusion and the ecology, etc., etc. But but I called this practice going against the stream of greed, hatred and delusion and practice of responding to life. So we might well ask ourselves, as a koan, I'm not about to give any answers, a clear answer, right? But, to, but I think it's important that we ask ourselves, how do I respond to the world? How am I moved to respond to greed, hatred and delusion? Here, right? these compulsions, these contractions, these confusions that I experience here, but also here, here in this world. The rapacious greed of the corporatization of our life. The rapacious aggression of the militarization of our life. The rapacious, I don't know, rapacious, the wanton, uh, crazed, distracting of the world of entertainment. How do we feel moved to respond to the world? One, One thing that's happening a lot in response to the world is people are meditating quite a lot. I like that. You know, 25 years ago, when I started practice, it was pretty weird to meditate. It was something I waited a while when I met someone before I told them that I meditated. And when I did tell them, it didn't always go so well. Mm-hmm. Really, it was a very, very, uh, it was a very strange thing to do. It made people feel uh, uncomfortable. They had all kinds of just sudden images of the of Hare Krishna or. Uh, Something, something foreign, something subversive, or just something a bit crazed. But now, I never hesitate, no need to ever hesitate to tell anyone I meditate. I don't remember any time recently when I've mentioned meditation to anyone that's found it odd or weird. They might uh, do it or not do it, but pretty much everyone seems to know somebody who meditates, and nobody finds it unusual. Great good for meditation teachers mm-hmm. and we can see the this kind of this impressive spread of mindfulness which is a beautiful thing and some of you who may be here on retreat or are here on retreat because of discovering meditation through uh, some kind of secular mindfulness course. And a lot of people find their way into meditation practice 
through mindfulness that's uh, very clearly secular doesn't have any Buddha statues or any associations with a, uh, anything that might look a little religious or something and which would therefore put them off so that's a great thing and it also reminds me of uh, you know as meditation is brought into all kinds of environments and I think it can be a force for good in all kinds of environments whether that's in corporations and in the military and these forces that I was just just a moment ago equating with the forces of greed hatred and delusion because there's a powerful it's there's a powerful gateway even if the initial motivation, even if the corporation gets someone in to teach mindfulness with the hope that it'll make the employees uh, better able to deal with stress, etc., uh, etc., et it's like guerrilla wisdom. <laughs> when you start to pay close attention to your mind, you start to notice stuff. And watching the development of meditation and yoga and mindfulness over the last uh, few decades, it's, as I say, in some ways it's inspiring and interesting. And yet, as there's more and more and more data, and as the tweaking of these practices, I was recently just reading something about the military program where they were kind of just seeing exactly how much uh, mindfulness practice the Marines needed to be able to stay focused but not to start thinking for themselves too much. (laughs) And of course, there's one part of the mindfulness practice is that there's there's a certain way. Just we notice the stress patterns in our body and we're able to soften them. We're able to deal better with the stresses of our life. But if we're dealing better with the stresses of our life, that's a life driven along by greed, hatred and delusion, then we might want to ask some hard questions about that. It's that lovely line by Krishnamurti. He says, It's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I'm, it's not that I'm suggesting that our society is profoundly sick. Society doesn't exist as a thing. Right? Just like the mountain we were exploring yesterday, you can't find society. It's, it's, a, it's complex. It's fluid. Right? We can point to this or we can point to that element of it. What we call society is actually just this. This meeting of minds in the moment. This meeting of ideas in the moment. But we would want to ask ourselves, what what am I supporting? These teachings traditionally have been offered in a context of serving something quite radical. Liberation. Awakening. The evolution of consciousness. Going against the stream of greed, hatred and delusion. My teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, when he would speak to foreigners at the monastery in Thailand, 
for a few months at least, every time he'd finish his talk, he would always finish with the same phrase. He'd say, so, even if you came here as a tourist, may you leave as a pilgrim. And it was very touching to me each time I would hear him say that. And he was, uh, he was quite radical in the way he taught. He didn't mind to shock people. In fact, I got the impression he quite liked shocking people. Sometimes when the ties would, on Sunday, people would come from Bangkok on bus trips and would get off the bus and come and they'd bow to him and, and he would say to them, get back on the bus. <laughs> say you people aren't interested in the Dharma this is just a pee stop <laughs> and of course because the Thai people are so faithful and they've got so much faith in Buddhism and in the teacher they say oh yes 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 <laughs> <laughs> but that sense from Ajahn Buddha he wanted people to wake up not to be comfortable this isn't this practice isn't designed to make us comfortable it's not designed to make us better adjusted to manage the stresses of a world driven along by greed hatred and delusion whether we're looking at the the greed hatred and delusion of the world or The, whether the compulsions, contractions, confusions that we find right here. I think it's wonderful, don't get me wrong, I think it's wonderful that mindfulness classes, I don't wish to say anything against mindfulness. And there's different ways in, and it's a good thing if people find a way to manage the difficulties and the stresses and the the insomnia and the depression and the confusion of their life. Good. People need the kind of care that they find themselves able to just give themselves gently. But I'm not talking to a mindfulness class. I'm talking to Dharma practitioners. I didn't know how it would be, this retreat, to kind of abandon, pretty much, the ABCs of mindfulness practice. I haven't had much in the way of meditation instruction. But we've been attuning to the truths of the way life is, the way life manifests, the way life moves. We've been meeting consciousness in a way that opens up and challenges our usual sense of self and world, challenges its solidity, challenges its fixed nature, challenges our sense of separation. And it's been very touching to see how those things have come alive for you. So who am I to tell you not to be comfortable? but it's worth reflecting what seems really possible to you in this practice. What are you prepared to uh, look into? 
How inspired are you to stay here wherever you go? Just thinking now of that line by Jesus where he says, Seek you first the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. And if we were to bastardize the line a little bit, we might say, Just stay here and let all things arise and move from here. It's a constant koan how to respond to the world. But it's a koan we're invited to engage with moment by moment by moment, situation by situation. Whether we like the situation or not, in other words, whether we're comfortable in the situation or not, is much less important than whether we're willing to see how we're responding to a situation. We prefer to be comfortable. I prefer to be comfortable. I like to be comfortable. But it's more important, it's better to be free than to be comfortable. 